uh, morning we're looking at um, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven. So you'll have seen that about just over halfway through. So we're just over halfway through this series. Um, if you didn't get outline notes as you came in, there's some guys from the Connect team just handing those out. Those notes have just got some of the, the Bible references from this morning's message and some blanks to fill in and small group questions and things like that. So if you've not get, got those, um, grab some of those now. For those who don't know me, my name's Jeff, part of the preaching team here at C3. Um, and this is a really significant series that we're in the middle of. Um, as you no doubt are aware, there are many different branches of the church. So they started with kind of one church going back 2,000 years, but over history that church has sometimes split, sometimes those splits have been kind of amicable, sometimes they've been quite um, kind of, I don't know, um, antagonistic or even violent. The, the kind of Great Schism is often talked about, that was in the middle of the um, 11th century, the Great Schism between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. So you see the Orthodox Church splitting from the Catholic Church. And then in the Reformation, as you know, the, the Catholic Church then splits and is divided uh, from the Protestant Church. And then the Protestant Church ends up in all sorts of different expressions. So you've got the Methodist Church, the Anglican Church, the Baptist Church, different free churches. This kind of church is part of a kind of free church movement and many other different types and brands of churches that throughout history and still in the world today have very different traditions, different views, different beliefs and different perspectives, all these different churches. And in many ways, I don't see that as a negative thing. I mean, sometimes the way it happened was quite negative and quite um, difficult in various periods of history. But actually, the church is a, a very varied and um, diverse world that we live in. And it's good that there are different expressions of the church that meet different needs. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But what's so important about this, this Apostles' Creed that we're looking at is, is this is not um, something that has been cobbled together by Steve and Angie, uh, the senior pastors here, or by the leadership team. This is a creed that runs through all of these different denominations of the universal church. These are like the core beliefs, the things, and it focuses us on, not on all the small differences in tradition and perspective, but it focuses us on the main things that we have in common, which are by far the greater things. So this is uh, a message as part of that series, and it's always a, a privilege to preach um, as part of a series, and it's a particular privilege this morning to have what is undoubtedly the most important message in the whole series. Um, which feels like, you know, a bit of an arrogant claim, but I do have uh, the Apostle Paul to back me up, who roughly paraphrased says this is the most important message. And um, what he actually says um, is this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, And if Christ has not been raised, raised from the dead, our preaching is useless. Do I hear an amen? Um, and so is your faith. So basically what he's saying is, if the resurrection, the thing we're looking at today, if that didn't happen then you know, all the preaching that goes on, everything we say, any other message that we might have to go alongside that, and any, anything else we do is useless. At the end of uh, that passage, verse 19, he says this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people, Christians, are most to be pitied. So if Christianity, if the message of Christianity at the end of the day is just about helping us to live this life a little bit better and to get a bit more out of this life and enjoy this life a bit more, if that's all it is, then actually we are to be pitied as Christians. It's a really striking statement. But what he's saying is ultimately it all comes down to the resurrection. There's many wonderful things that a church can do and can be part of. And this church is a hugely positive and active space and place. You know, different kind of community programs and um, all sorts of other things, midweek groups and, um, you know, youth work and children's work and kind of 
food banks and all these different you know, things that goes on in and around the community. And that's all wonderful stuff. But if the resurrection didn't happen, if it's not a kind of identifiable historical fact, then what Paul is saying is basically all this, however good and, and beneficial it might be, is just at the end of the day, activity. Now, I can say my life has greatly been benefited by much of the activity in this church, and I'm sure most of us here would say the same. But it doesn't kind of diminish the fact that actually, ultimately, it's all about the resurrection. It's the resurrection that gives meaning and definition to our very lives. Now, I grew up in an Anglican church, uh, Church of England church. It was quite a relaxed church, a fantastic church, uh, but it followed the liturgy. So that means it had a set pattern of words that were spoken, quite an extensive set of words that were spoken throughout the service every week. And the creed that we've just said was part of that liturgy. And I have to say, it was always, um, if I'm honest, a slight low point in the service for me. You know, partly, you know, the, the liturgy, because you say the same thing every week, it could get a little bit repetitive. But lots of the parts of it that were quite repetitive, at least you were sitting down and someone else was saying it. Whereas this part, you had to stand up and you had to say it the same every week. You know, are we believe in this? And, you know, and it, you know, it did get just a bit of a mantra that you recited. And there's, there is always this, this, this challenge with the liturgy when you repeat something every week. There is the challenge that it does just become a little bit tired, a little bit repetitive. But what it did mean is that as a congregation, twice every service, the whole congregation would stand up like we just did and would speak the central Christian truth that on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. We would do it as we just did in the creed and then later on in the service towards uh, communion, the whole congregation would again stand up and would say, Christ has died, Christ is risen and Christ will come again. And those central truths we would repeat every week. And, you know, there is this challenge with liturgy. How do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it meaningful? But it did mean that all these kind of essential bases were covered every single week. Here, you know, we might have no set liturgy and it might be in some ways more free-flowing and that's wonderful and it keeps it fresh and full of life. But we have to sometimes work hard to make sure that we don't go off on different tangents and get distracted from not continually coming back to those central points. And that's why this, this series is so foundational, taking the time to focus on these really core truths of Christianity. So what I want to look at today is how can we say with confidence, I believe and we believe in the resurrection, this startling claim um, that we make and that we've all made. It's a tall order for 30 uh, minutes, I think 28 minutes now. Um, so two disclaimers I want to start off with. Firstly... What I cannot do today is offer you an absolutely conclusive, undeniable, watertight proof that the resurrection happened. If I could offer you scientific and historical fact that made that indisputable, the world would be a very different place. Obviously, there are elements of faith and there are obviously elements of belief that go into what we're going to be looking at today. And the second disclaimer is this. You know, I'm not going to go into these issues this morning in anywhere near the detail that they rightly deserve. You know, I could keep on speaking until 8 o'clock this evening. Um, I won't, but I could do. And I still would not cover anywhere near the amount of information, the amount of points and the amount of relevant details there are about the resurrection. It's a huge, huge issue. What I hope is that as we look at it today, that it will kind of whet your appetite and provoke an interest 
to maybe pursue some of these things beyond here. Here are two suggestions. If at the end of this message you feel in some way dissatisfied that there's, there's more you want to know or there's things that I've covered and glossed over that you think I'd like to know more about that because it looked like it was fudging that slightly, then I encourage you to do these two things. Firstly, if you've never been on an Alpha course, go on an Alpha course. This church runs two Alpha courses at least every year. There's going to be another one starting after the summer. Many people here have been on an Alpha course and had their lives changed by it. And um, there are several weeks devoted to the topic of Jesus' death and what that meant and then Jesus' resurrection. So there's more time to kind of dig into some of those things in a bit more detail. The second thing I'd like to recommend, and this is a really strong recommendation, is um, a book which is uh, called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. This is one of my top five Christian books, okay? And I don't say that lightly, you know, it's, it's a pretty selective list to get into the top five, particularly when you consider at least one of those has to be the Bible. So, you know, it's a pretty amazing book. And what the, this guy, Lee Strobel, he was a reporter, a legal reporter for the um, Chicago Tribune. And one day his wife becomes a Christian. And Lee isn't very happy about this. He thinks his wife's gone on from this kind of wacky kind of whatever. Um, so what he does, he takes all his legal knowledge, all his kind of reporting kind of sense, and he goes about trying to basically interview lots of biblical scholars and historical people, uh, historical kind of experts um, and theological experts. And basically what he tries to do is discredit the Christian faith by speaking to these people and blowing holes into their arguments and show how basically what they're saying is a load of rubbish. And his plan is to take all this information, put it into a book, and then publish it. Now, you might say that's, you know, as grand romantic gestures go, that's quite a... You know, quite an interesting approach. You know, here you are, darling. I didn't get you flowers for Valentine's Day. I've got your book basically rubbishing everything you believe. Um, but what happens is over his process of speaking to these different experts and these different scholars, instead of being able to discredit Christianity, he himself becomes completely convinced by it. And he, the more he reads their arguments, the more he, be, and he... At the end of it, he becomes a Christian. He gives his life, and then he has now spent the rest of his life kind of preaching this message and is an amazing evangelist. And he's, he's written this book that writes up that whole process called The Case or The Case for Christ. And there's another great book in the series later on that he wrote called The Case for Faith that looks at many of the other complicated questions of Christian theology. So if you've never read them, they're really readable, fantastic books. Um, and I've put them in your notes, Lee Strip. I've got a copy here at the front if anyone wants to have a look at it at the end. So those two kind of um, things aside in terms of what I can't do, what I would like to try and demonstrate this morning is that there is at least a justifiable basis for a, a belief in the resurrection. That in, in order for people in the 21st century to believe in this, we don't have to just kind of say, well, I'm just going to take my brain out and ignore it and just hope. That there is a justifiable basis for belief. Now, in this day and age, cynicism is much more popular than belief. It's much easier to cast doubt on something, and obviously things like conspiracy theories are rife. I was reading an article recently about flat earthers. Has anyone heard about flat earthers? People who still maintain that the earth is not a globe, okay, that it's flat. And you kind of think, well, we, didn't we put that to bed several hundred years ago? But there are still people who say, no, I think it's, it's not a globe. I think, it's, I think it's flat or a kind of dome shape, and various different theories. Um, and I thought about this, and... And what, what struck me, particularly in the light of this message, is, you know, perhaps they have a point. I mean, personally, if I go to my own personal knowledge, and, you know, my knowledge is limited, I, I don't have any kind of indisputable proof in and of myself that the Earth is a, a globe and not flat. You know, I rely on other people's evidence, other people who I assume know more about it and have got no reason to lie about it. 
But if I just go on what I can experience myself, you know, I've never been up into space so I can look down on the Earth and say, oh yeah, it is a globe. That was worth it, wasn't it? No, I've, I've never done that. You know, I've been on an aeroplane, but all I know about an aeroplane is you get, up, you get on the aeroplane, it goes up, and then it goes along. I don't know whether it does that or whether it does that, and at some point it goes down again. So there's, there's nothing, you know, I've seen pictures, but they could be fabricated. There's all various bits of evidence, but nothing that if in and of myself I could say, I, I can know that to be true. And yet, what do all of us do? We rely on other people who know about these things, and we rely on what they've seen and what they understand and what they can show us. And as, we, as soon as we start unpicking belief, it can, you know, make sense. well, how can we believe anything, particularly looking back in history? I mean, the resurrection we're looking at as a historical event and a historical fact that happened. How can we believe things that happened in history? Perhaps many of you yesterday enjoyed uh, watching the royal wedding. Here you watched the royal wedding. Yeah, there we go. Lovely, lovely event. Um, I was, I was just slightly sorry watching it, thinking, it, you know, it's, it's always a shame as a preacher when you realise that your message is only ever going to be the second best preached message that people hear over the weekend. So <laughs> apologies about that, but it was a fantastic message that, that, um, that the bishop shared. Um, but I want us to think a little bit about Harry's namesake a bit further back in history. King Henry VIII, who had how many wives? Six wives. Henry VIII had six wives. Most of us know that. It's a fact that we're all pretty sure of. My question is, how do we know that? How do we know, you might say you just told me, but other than that, how do we know that Henry VIII had six wives? You know, I didn't go to any of the weddings. I've not, you know, I've not, never met this Henry VIII. It's far back in history. How can we know that to be true? And of course, what we rely on is historical written documents. Documents from all sorts of different people around that time who talk about things and kind of make it clear what the case was, that Henry VIII existed and that he had these wives. And we rely on these historical documents for our information and these um, written records. So my first question I want to look at this morning, this is in your notes, is what is the evidence for the resurrection? Okay? And in the same way as for King Henry VIII, we might rely on written historical documents, the same is true for the resurrection and the life of Jesus. We rely on historical documents and written records. And what historical records are there outside, of course, the Bible? Which is a common question that people ask. And there are various different historical records from around the time. And this, the book, The Case for Christ, goes into a lot of detail looking at all these different texts that are around, some by kind of Jewish historians and Roman historians and all sorts of different writers, some of whom are, are very positive and pro-Christianity, some who are very antagonistic towards this new faith um, that is springing up, but even in their antagonism, do help us to kind of attest to certain key facts about the early church um, and the life and resurrection of Jesus. Um, but I don't really want to look into those in a huge amount of detail this morning, just for time. And what I don't want us to do is skip over recognising that actually the Bible is a hugely, hugely significant historical document. It's not just a religious book. In fact, in terms of its kind of scholarly, um, I don't know, kind of acceptance, it is the most reliable historical document, I believe, from the ancient world, from that time. Now, there are no books from that time that we actually have the original versions of. You know, Luke wrote it, um, his gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke will have written his on, you know, parchment or something or whatever. We don't have the original parchment. What we do have is hundreds and thousands of copies that were written based on the original very close. 
And because we have so many copies, we, we can know that they were all based on the same original version. If you've only got two or three copies, you don't know whether someone's changed and adapted it. If you've got lots and lots of copies, and they all say the same thing, you know and you've got a very clear sense of what the original text would have said. So we should not write the Bible off as just some ancient kind of religious book. Let's look at the opening lines of Luke's gospel. His account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is what he says right at the start. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So this gospel of Luke and the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark and John are the same. They are not presented as some kind of fantastical, mystical, allegorical, religious fable. They are presented as verifiable historical documents and records, carefully compiled. Look at some of the words that Luke uses. He draws up an account handed down by those who were eyewitnesses, people who witnessed and saw these things for themselves. He's carefully investigated things and written an orderly account. This is not the language of a fanciful kind of um, allegory. It's deliberately presented as historical record. So that's what it claims to be. The question is, can we trust it? And particularly, can we trust its claims regarding the resurrection? Now, there are four reasons why accepting its claims about the resurrection particularly are more difficult for us to accept than accepting the claims about Henry VIII and his six wives. That's something that is fairly easy for people to accept. The resurrection, let's be honest, is far more difficult for us to accept. Why is that? Firstly, pretty obviously, Henry VIII, about 500 years ago. The events of the resurrection 2,000 years ago. It's much further back in history, much more distant from us. So that makes it more difficult for us to understand and to know. And correspondingly, point two, there are far fewer historical documents pertaining to the events of the resurrection. So uh, when we look at King Henry VIII and the Tudor period, there are so many written historical documents and records from all sorts of people that in very many ways confirm themselves and kind of attest to those key points that we've looked at. That Henry VIII was the king, that he had six wives. Whereas with the uh, resurrection, there are the gospels, very reliable kind of accounts, there are other documents, but there are nowhere near as many documents. Thirdly, and this is probably the most significant, you know, in order for me to believe that King Henry VIII existed and that he had six wives, it doesn't require any great leap of imagination or faith. You know, I, I can accept looking at the natural world around me that a king might have existed, that he might have been called Henry, that he might have had seven ancestors already called Henry, and that he might have got married six times. You know, it doesn't take a lot for me to believe that. But look at the resurrection. There is no way you can possibly believe in the resurrection unless on some level you are prepared to accept the possibility of the existence of a supernatural dimension to the world we live in. If you're only prepared to view the world as the natural sphere that we can see and perceive around us, then you can never believe the resurrection. It does not make sense. You have to step into an, an acceptance or a, a, a kind of being prepared to accept the fact that that supernatural realm might exist. And finally, an acceptance of the truth of the resurrection demands a huge amount more of us. 
Were a historian to turn up and come with undeniable proof that actually Henry VIII hadn't existed with six wives, that there were six different people called Henry VIII and they all had one wife each, you know, this would be a, a radical new kind of rethinking of history. It would be interesting. It might make an interesting TV series that I might well watch, but it's not going to radically transform my life. Whereas an acceptance and a belief in the resurrection fundamentally changes our perspective on our life and the life of every single person on this planet. The resurrection changes everything. So we can't come back to this question, are the Gospels compelling historical evidence? What else could they be? Could they be a hoax? Not true, a deliberate lie. Could they be the ramblings of someone who was trying to say what they thought was true but they were a misguided kind of individual, deluded? Well, one of the most compelling things I believe that point towards the resurrection is this, it's changed lives. And the Gospels and other writings kind of talk about lives that were transformed by the event of the resurrection. I want to start with the disciple Peter. Now, Peter is probably the most famous of the 12 disciples, um, sometimes for good things, sometimes for not such good things. Occasionally, he puts his foot in his mouth. But he is most famous of all, probably, for being the disciple who denied Jesus three times. Jesus had been arrested. Peter was sitting by a campfire. Someone says to him, weren't you with Jesus? And instead of saying, yes, I was with him, I'm one of his followers, he says, no, I don't even know him. And he did this three times, just as Jesus predicted. Now, I think sometimes Peter is given a pretty hard time for having got it wrong in this way. But I, I can absolutely understand where Peter was coming from. Peter would have been both terrified and disillusioned. You see, the followers of Jesus had been with him for three years. They didn't just believe him to be a great teacher or a great person to hang around with. They believed that he was the Messiah, that he was coming to set them free, to overturn the Roman authorities and to bring a new kingdom of hope. That was what they believed. They had invested everything of their lives in that. And then he's arrested. And at that point, they must have been hugely fearful. They must have realised that what was likely to happen was he was likely to be tried and he was likely to be executed in possibly the most brutal way imaginable, being crucified by the Romans. And the Romans probably would not be satisfied with just crucifying Jesus. If they were concerned about this rebellion or this uprising, they would want to kind of find out and kind of hunt down the other people that were involved. And Peter was one of the most identifiable people involved. So he must have been terrified that just around the corner was his own arrest and was his own um, execution at the hands of the Romans. And not just that, he would have been hugely disillusioned. He had put everything into his belief in Jesus. And suddenly, there he is, arrested, helpless. And his worst fears are then recognised. He's executed, he's taken down from the cross and buried. So that is Peter. Yet just a few weeks later... Peter the denier becomes Peter the Pentecost preacher. He gets up on the day of Pentecost, which, as Josh said, is celebrated in the um, traditional church today. And this is what he says. This is Max 2. Fellow Israelites, he's here now talking, not just a small group of people. He is talking to a group of thousands. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. He is no longer pretending he doesn't know Jesus. He is confidently standing and proclaiming who Jesus was, which God did these signs amongst you and through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. 
So timid, terrified, disillusioned Peter is now standing in front of a crowd of thousands, not just telling them about Jesus, but accusing them of having put him to death wrongly. And then he says this, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He preaches this amazing, confrontational, challenging message, clearly pinning his colours to the mast to this group of thousands. What turns Peter from this timid guy hiding from someone at a campfire to someone who's prepared to stand in front of thousands and give this message that could have well signalled within a matter of hours his own death? What caused that change? Could it have been it was a deliberate lie? If it was a deliberate lie, what did he have to gain? What did he have to gain from from tricking all these people into believing that Jesus was resurrected? Peter, like most of the other church leaders from the early church, led difficult lives, proclaiming this message, but often meeting hostility and challenge and difficulty. And nearly all of them died, often in most terrible ways, at the hands of the Romans for preaching the message that Jesus was raised from the dead. If it was all a hoax, if it was all a lie, what was the purpose of it? What were they looking to gain? Makes no sense. Perhaps it wasn't a lie. Perhaps Peter was deluded. Perhaps he he believed with all his conviction in the resurrection, but he was just a kind of deluded, poor fool. But the truth is, it wasn't just Peter. If it had just been one person, that would be understandable. But it was the other church leaders. This is what Paul says in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that was Peter, and then to the twelve, the other disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So Jesus didn't just appear to one person or just a a small handful. He appeared to crowds of 500 people. That is more, nearly double the amount of people that are in this room this morning. And what Paul is saying is most of these people are still alive. So at the point that that Paul is writing this, there are still hundreds and hundreds of people alive who can attest to having seen the resurrected Jesus. They cannot all have been deluded. They cannot all have been I'm on the wrong track. What other evidence is there for the resurrection? Well, one of the other very compelling pieces of evidence is the empty tomb. The fact that Jesus' body was no longer in the tomb. We believe that was because Jesus had risen from the dead and had left the tomb. If that wasn't the case, then where did the body go? Some people's explanation, this is a very commonly held belief, is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. This is possibly one of the most ridiculous, I think, of the, the kind of um, possible other explanations. You know, the Romans knew what they were doing when it came to crucifixion. It was a very efficient, effective uh, method of killing somebody. And once he had died, not only that, they put a spear through his side. So what people would say is, well, had he somehow fallen into, into a swoon? Had he somehow survived being crucified, being flogged first within an inch of his life, then crucified, and then having the spear put through his side? We then take this figure, we then put him in a tomb where we lie for two days and two nights without any food, without any water, without any access to medical kind of help or treatment. And then after two days, he wakes up and goes, you know what, I don't feel nearly as bad as I thought I would. Just going to move this stone out of the way, off I go. You know, it's, it's completely implausible. If, if in any way it was possible that he had not died as a result of all this, 
the figure that would be left would be this ravaged wreck of a human body in every kind of physical breakdown in every possible way. How possibly could that have been a figure that crowds would rally around and go, wow, look, he's raised from the dead, rather than just feeling huge pity um, and misery at seeing him? How could they truly proclaim him to be the Messiah? So if Jesus didn't just awake from a swoon, where else could the body have gone? Could the disciples have stolen it? Well, we've already said, what would they have to gain from lying and deceiving people into believing in the resurrection? What about the rest of the authorities? You know, could they have taken the body away? Perhaps it's plausible. They thought, we don't want this tomb to become a rallying point for other troublemakers and rabble-rousers. Let's remove the body and then it'll all die down and they'll forget about it. But then a few weeks later, when everyone's kind of saying that you know, Jesus is raised from the dead, that um, the resurrection has happened, and this kind of trouble starts building up again, surely at that point they would have said, no, he didn't. We've still got the body. The body is here. He's not raised from the dead. He is still dead, surely. There is no record in any of the historical documents that attest to the fact the authorities ever claimed to have moved the body. It makes no sense. So possibly the reason the tomb is empty is why the, 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 the fact that the gospel state it was empty because Jesus had risen from the dead and was amongst his people. So that is some, a, a small snapshot of some of the, the compelling evidence for the resurrection. Is it watertight? No, but hopefully it gives us a glimpse and a confidence that actually there is a plausible basis on which we can factually believe in the historical event of the resurrection. If that's wet, wetted your appetite but hasn't fully satisfied it, please do read other things. Go to other sources. Read around this subject or listen to other messages because it is fully worth exploring. Just in the few minutes before we close, I want to look at two other very important aspects. And the second point is this in your notes. What is the theological significance of the resurrection? Why does the resurrection matter? Well, first and foremost, it proves beyond any contesting that Jesus is who he claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the one sent to save mankind. That was his claim. That was the life he lived. Had he been killed and never heard of again, then that claim would be shown to be false. But the fact that he was raised from the dead and came back victorious is a demonstration that he was who he said he was, that we can have full confidence in putting our hope and our trust in him. And more than that, what the, the theological significance of the resurrection is this. It represents God's and Jesus' victory over sin and death. You see, if we go right back to the beginning of the Bible and the fall of man, when there's this separation between God and man, Adam and Eve and the apple and, and all that, what happens there is there is this rift created between God and man because of sin. The wrong things that we do separate us from God. And the consequences of that separation is death. And for generation from Adam through Abraham and all the, all the Old Testament, you see people, even those who lived and followed God, dying, and that being seemingly the end of their lives. But then Jesus comes along, the man who never sinned. He's put to death, but death does not hold him. This is what Paul says in his letter to the Romans, chapter 6. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So Jesus once and for all defeated the power of sin and its ultimate consequence, death, when he was raised from the dead. 
And even better news and theological significance is that is not just for Jesus. That is for each and every one of us who live in the light and the good of his sacrifice. This is what Paul says in his letters to the Corinthians. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate victory that the Gospels attest to. And the final question that I'm addressing as we look at this is, what is the personal relevance? That's the the global theological significance. What does that mean for me as an individual? Of course, it is hugely significant. As I said at the beginning, the resurrection isn't just an interesting fact you may or may not believe in. It's more important than Henry VIII. It's more important than even what shape the earth that we live on is. The personal relevance, relevance for each and every one of us is hugely, hugely significant and life-changing. And I believe it represents these two things, future hope. Future hope and present freedom. Again, in this, this, this amazing chapter, if you have time this week, please read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Many of the verses today are drawn from here. This is what Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection, this goes back to what we said at the beginning. The the resurrection isn't just about, in Christianity, isn't just about having a better life in the 70, 80 years we may hope to have on this planet. Of course, it is all that, and Jesus came so that we can live life to the full. And hopefully we would all say, my life is enriched by my faith, and the lives of others around can be enriched by that faith as well. But it is about so much more than that. It is about an eternal hope that when that 70, 80 years comes to its conclusion, that there is more, that there is another age to come, an unending age. And I sometimes wonder that that future hope, perhaps in the past it seemed so much more important, Maybe it's a, a fallacy to think this, but it, you know, when you look back in history, life was so short often. Life was so fragile. Life for many people was so miserable, so difficult, so hard, and it almost felt like a trial to get through. And that often what kept people going was this life is a trial, this life is a challenge, this life is difficult, but there is a future age to come which will be glorious. Now, many of us don't, experience life like that. For many of us, our lives are good, our lives are happy, our lives are fulfilled, our lives are blessed. And sometimes that can diminish our focus on a future life to come. As I was preparing this message, just speaking personally, my greatest challenge isn't believing in the resurrection. It's grappling with the fact that sometimes, if I'm honest, that truth of the resurrection doesn't profoundly shape and affect my life to to the complete extent that it should every single day. The resurrection offers us a future hope and a present freedom. I'm going to close with this verse from Paul to the Romans. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
we can experience freedom from this life, freedom to explore and enjoy a relationship with God. But there is also a future hope that we look forward to. And that is the truth and that is the glory of the resurrection that we celebrate this morning, but every time we gather together as the church and celebrate and give glory to Jesus who died for us and was raised from death. Let's stand together um, just before we close. In a few minutes, um, after we sung this final song, Josh is going to come up and he's going to give an appeal and a chance for anybody here who has never, who has never taken that step of acknowledging the personal significance of the resurrection and saying, I want to put my trust in Jesus, the one who died for me and the one whose resurrection offers me new life. If you are here this morning and you have never prayed that prayer, you've never taken that first step, then I urge you to do it this morning, to pray that prayer along with Josh. And when he asks you to put your hand confidently in the air and say, yes, I've made that step this morning. You know, perhaps you've still got questions. I readily admit there are all sorts of questions that spring from what I've said this morning. But what I encourage you to do is not to ask those questions standing on the outside, kind of looking in, but to actually take that confident step of stepping in, experiencing a life of faith, and continuing to explore those things as you do so. So when Josh gives you that opportunity to do this morning, please be confident, please be bold. If you've never prayed that prayer, pray it this morning. Um, I urge you, just let's bow our heads in prayer before we sing. Lord Jesus, we are so blessed by you. We are thankful, Lord Jesus, that you died for each and every one of us. But we are even more thankful that that was not the end of the story, that the story does not finish with a dead and disappointing leader. But it ends with the resurrection. It ends with you being raised from, um, raised from the dead, having victory over sin and death. And that in your resurrection, we all have hope. We all have a future. We all have freedom. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would live in the good of that hope and that we would live in the good of that freedom, that we would never be remiss in thinking about it, in dwelling on it and living our lives in accordance with that truth. Help each and every one of us this week to think and dwell on those things further, to explore how they more profoundly can affect our lives and the lives of those around us. I pray that the, the seed of resurrection and new life that has been sown into each heart here, that that will grow and flourish over the coming weeks, months and years and for the rest of our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name.